we, we, we should rap about things that we like, like, like food. That's what. You bugging ass Jeff, you know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Just spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheese maker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. <laughs> Eating crackers. How about four beans, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. Hey, Warwick, how you going? Very good, thanks, John. Yourself? Welcome to the Cheesy Podcast. I've been trying to get you on. It must be must be for about eight months now. I think we've been text, uh, texting so, back and yeah. forth. Yeah, it's been a while. So, um, how's the weather down there, mate? Have you had snow down where you are? Not where we are. Um, I think it's only snowed around this area about once in the last 50 years, so we, highly unlikely. <laughs> but it's been bitterly cold the last uh, couple of weeks, and today is the first day we've had a good warm weather, you know, really comfortable. But as I say, it's good baking weather. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> um, it'd be good, good for baking the cold, but how does it go for, you know, because you, you work in sourdough, so how does... How does cold weather impact, um, like the imp- impact you doing your job? I guess it's uh, a lot easier. Oh, really? Um, oh, okay. Oh, totally. Um, sourdough yeasts tend to be pretty cold yeasts. They like colder temperatures, um, and the sort of the size bakes that I do probably two hundred fifty to five hundred loaves of bread. Um, cooler temperatures mean that I've got more control and I, I can basically uh, work as quickly or as slowly as I like, whereas uh, in hotter weather, I'm always struggling to keep the, the retarded product cold enough um, to be able to hold it in a good shape until I get it in the oven. My oven's not huge. Uh, I can only bake about 36 to 40-something loaves at a time. So when you're doing a couple of hundred, um, you've got to structure your bake pretty carefully. So cold weather's definitely an advantage for me. So you do a lot of markets and stuff, don't you? Yeah. So yeah. Do, do you basically bake sort of all Friday, Saturday night? Yeah, I do. Um, these days I do all Friday. Um, so I bake, I, I start the process early Friday morning. Um, not too early, pretty civilised, eight or nine. Uh, and then I work through to midnight or one. So it's quite a long day for me on a Friday. Yeah. And then uh, I pack it all up on the trailer and take it down to Newcastle, which is about an hour away from here. And then what, bake again when you're down there? or No, I just do the one day at the moment. Um, this year I'm going to expand into doing two different markets, both of them in Newcastle. Um, but as at the moment, I'm just doing the one. Yeah. Um, and you'd, you'd pretty much sell out all the time, wouldn't you? Because once people know where there's good sourdough, like we've got a little bakery here, which is just bizarre in the middle of, uh, like outside of Bean Lee, which is not 
exactly the food capital of southeast Queensland. Um, <laughs> and we've got a guy that, you know, uh, he was a baker uh, and he went and worked all through Europe, you know, Italy and France. Um, mm. And then came back and he doesn't even live locally. He lives down the Gold Coast. Mm. And, and um, what the hell is going on there? Something happened then. Um and yeah, came back and bought this bakery in Windaroo, and and he makes excellent sourdough. So we've sort of got a little local ah. local guy, and he only does it on weekends. He does a, a, a Saturday morning and a Sunday morning sourdough, but um they yeah. o- they always sell out. Um, yeah. Of, yeah, it's very popular. Yeah. So so is That's that why I'm, I've I've got a sourdough starter, and mm. over summer I found because I'm not the most. Uh, attention to detail person i'd leave it for a couple of days and it had sort of not fare that well if i wasn't feeding it every day is that is that just the heat mm-hmm. making it process too quickly that's right um it's how it started is a combination of live yeasts um depending on how old it is it could have anything up to 10 different um, species of, of live yeast uh and a variety of different species of bacteria as well yeah and when you when you warm them up, and I'm, I guess rule of thumb, once they're above about 15, between 15 and 25 degrees, they're travelling at what I would say would be somewhere between 80 and 100 percent fermentation rate. So they're really going full tilt. <laughs> well, um, you, you've just described pretty much like it doesn't really get below 15 degrees where I am. Like, yeah. um, especially not inside. So yeah. I keep all my starters uh, in the fridge um, all year round, and that oh, just right. means that. Yeah. Um, so will, will they I'd still say, will they still keep working at that temperature? Yep, they do. Um, years ago, I used to think of the fridge as a pause button. Yeah. Uh, for the fermentation process, but it's not. Um, it's actually it. It's basically. Once you get, I've got a little chart that I use to teach people about this, but uh, when you get below 10 degrees, you're talking about 25% fermentation. So in other words, it's traveling about a quarter of the speed that it would if it was above, say, 20. So if you were feeding it every day, then you'd feed it every four days. Exactly, exactly. Uh, once you get down to five degrees or below, then the fermentation rate is down to about 10%. So the, the rule of thumb is 24 degrees centigrade is 100% fermentation rate. Yeah. So at that rate, um, it will, depending on the, the consistency of the starter that you're using, like it sounds to me like you're using a liquid starter. It's, it's um, sort of... Um... Name. It's it's not it's not a dough, uh, but it's it's you can sort of get a big gob of it out with the spoon, sort of thing. Okay, so it's a thick, it's, like a it's thick a, batter. Yep, like like a bit thicker than a pan, than a pancake batter, actually. Yeah. Okay. So a starter with that sort of consistency would probably ripen every sixteen hours if it was kept between fifteen and twenty-five degrees. Yep. So wow. I'm definitely so, not feeding it that often, so Well, it 
doesn't mean you have to feed it every 16 hours. It just means that once you've fed it, it'll ripen up sometime in the, after 16 hours. Okay, and that's when you should make dough? No, you should, um, you should allow it to ripen and then sink, then make dough. Okay, so really, so, so if, I, if, I, if, I'd, if I'd fed it today, which I did because I made pizzas tonight, so I put some flour back in it, you, yep. should, you shouldn't really use it for another sort of 36 hours or so. Ideally, yes. You basically want it to rise up and then come down again. Yep. Uh, and then you've got to grab it before what's called a hooch forms. So that's that little layer of liquid on top, which by the sound of things, you're not going to get a hooch with that consistency, but people, often people will keep a liquid starter at, at one part flour, one part water. And that will mean that it's quite likely that there'll be a bit of a separation going on, that sort of layer of liquid over the top, and that's top. called a hooch. Yeah, right. I'm, uh, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm definitely not that technical. I throw a bit of flour in. If it feels a bit too thick, I throw a bit of water in. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, I, I work with a much thicker starter. I work with two parts flour, one part water. Yeah. Um, that's a much more stable beastie, and you're talking probably a minimum of uh, probably about 48 hours before it ripens uh, after a feed. So it's a much more stable thing, and you don't have to feed it all the time. And do you, do you if you're doing commercial baking then for sourdough, do you have to keep multiple starters going at the same time? I have done. At the moment, I just keep one. My baking cycle works in such a way that I do a 72-hour fermentation. So uh, this week, I'm baking on Friday rather than, sorry, I'm baking on Thursday. So I've done, today I do my pre-ferment, which is um, I take 1% of my finished dough weight that I'm looking for, uh, and that's my December, my starter. And then I add uh, to that, I create uh, a pre-ferment or a sponge that's one part flour, one part water, and it equals 50% of my finished dough weight. So in other words, um, say I'm making 20 kilos of dough, then I would use 200 grams of starter. Yep. And I would use uh, kilos of five litres of water, five kilos of flour, mix all those together and let them ferment for a full day. And in this weather, you can pretty much leave them out of the fridge. And then tomorrow, I'll build the dough by adding another bit more flour, bit more water to that. Um, and, uh, and then the next day, I'll cut that dough up. Um, so typically a 20 kilo dough will give me 25 chunks of what we call rough rounds or balls of dough and they'll ripen them for a day. And then the final day, I mould them into shape and give them a quick final proof and bake them off. So you're, like, that's, you're not, when you're making that starter dough, you're, you you just sort of mix it into a, sh like, I've had a go, I haven't, unfortunately, I have not yet made a successful, um, what I would call a successful loaf. Uh, every, everything tends to be too heavy, and I think I was, you know, I, I play around with it a bit too much because you don't really work it that much, do you? Not really. Um, 
if you're doing it by hand, it is a limit as to how much you can work your dough. Mm. Uh, you might be aware of that process called auto leaves, which is where you, uh, it's it's also translated as a delayed salt method. So you, you yep. mix all your flour all together and then you let it stand for an hour or two. Yep, um, and then put the salt in. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's quite useful when you're making dough by hand because that creates a, a type of development that's jargon, but it's biological development. So that, that's the development that happens naturally. Um, then once you've added the salt, you move into two other types of development, chemical development and mechanical development. And, and when the salt's in, you can mechanically develop, in other words, you need the living daylights out of it as much as you want. And in fact, the more you need it, the lighter the bread's going to be. Oh, right. I, okay, so I, that, I was not aware of that. And, and kneading sourdough is sort of like stretching and folding, isn't it, rather than kneading like a traditional bread? You can do stretching and folding. That's one technique. Um, I teach another technique called baker's turns, which are a little bit different, but you do you, you get your stretch by... Um, by moulding them into a cylinder and then stretching the outer skin. It's a little bit hard to explain without physically doing it. Yeah. Um, baker's turn is a common technique as well, but stretching and folding is very effective, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, I use a mixer, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm doing somewhere in the vicinity of 180 to yeah, 200 kilos each time. You'd so, have forearms like uh, Popeye. I have... Uh, I did do all my dough by hand for a number of years, um, and it's just a bit of technique, really. You, you've got to be set up to do it, and you can work up to about 20 kilos by hand by having a, a number of tubs going at the same time. And you work one, and then you let it rest, then you work the next one, you let it rest, and so forth, and you just work the whole process through. And I used to find that I could in between my general day's duties, and at that, that time I was running a cafe, um, I could basically do a variety of different doughs uh, simultaneously, and I could do up to about 180 kilos by hand in between doing everything else that you do during the day with just a lot of resting and a lot of um, stretching and folding. So if I'm trying to make, say I'm trying to make a loaf for uh, Sunday, can I, like, is there a way I can stretch that over a couple of days without having to sort of sit over it all day Saturday? For sure, for sure. So if you're wanting to bake it on Sunday... Yeah, so if I wanted might... it to, to, to whack it in the oven on Sunday morning. Yep, yep. So your fridge is your friend. Um, the, the best way to do something like that might be, for example, on Wednesday... To create a pre-ferment, like oh, well, I said before, the, a little starter. That, that um, early. Yeah. And then put that in the fridge. The next day, build your dough from your pre-ferment. So basically entails adding more flour, um, giving it a bit of a rest, adding some salt, giving it a good knead, stick it back in the fridge. Uh, so this is now, we're now up to sort of Thursday. Um, Friday, take it out of the fridge, cut it. So you can always make a dough bigger than one loaf of bread. Um, so it might be, say, two loaves, cut it in half, um, 
on Friday, put it back in the fridge. Saturday, take it out again, mould it into shape, and you can even put it back in the fridge if you want to. Yeah. And then uh, bake it on Sunday. So that that was the other one that that last process. I've sort of watched endless YouTube videos of that 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 way you shape it and sort of stretch the skin. Is that is that pretty important? That last shaping. Um, if you watch YouTube. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, this is the 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 internet's a, a, a fantastic. I've been doing a bit of soap making lately, and just the amount of information that's out there. And actually, it's actually been really not so much YouTube, but just websites have been very, very helpful with the soap making. Because, um, like, I'll I'll think, oh, what what do I do here? And I basically type it into a couple of sites that I've come to to find that have been reliable and. You know, mm. it's obviously a problem that comes up time and time again, and they've got an answer for it. So, yeah, and you know, the the internet is wonderful because there, there is virtually nothing you can't gather information on. Mm. The problem um, is, you can also gather lots of information that contradicts each other on the same topic. Exactly, um, that's exactly the point. Um, I, I have this. All the time, people contact me and they say, "Oh, I'm doing this from this website, and I'm doing then I'm doing this from this one, and then I'm doing this from here." And they're sort of mixing and matching a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. And while each one might be integral to itself, and it will probably work, um, when you start combining pieces of information from different sources, um, it does get very confusing. And I've noticed that people do get very confused. Um, I know. My final mould takes me about one second. I basically take it in the ball and I squeeze it into a cylinder and I put it straight on a board and dust the board and uh, wait for it to rise again. And and yet I know, um, and that final rise in my method takes anywhere between an hour and two hours. Yep. Um, whereas uh, I know a lot of people that will that final rise can be anywhere up to twelve hours. You know? Okay, um, and, and then do you, do yeah, you just roll it off that board then onto the bake, like what, what you're baking it onto, or do you just put it straight in? Yeah, I do. Um, in my case, I, I my final proof. I don't use bannetons. I don't use um, crucians. I don't use anything. I just use a wooden board with semolina on it. Yep. Um, and then I just scoop under it with a a, a baker's a cutter. Um, put it on my peel and load it directly in the oven. Yeah, right. Well, it's pretty, uh, pretty simple. Yeah, that's si- simple as what I like. I might, I might try that that way on the <laughs> weekend and see how I go. Yeah. So, what did I, I put dough in it? So, yeah, I could make if I've put flour in the starter today. Yeah. I, I could use that for uh, starting on Wednesday, couldn't I? You certainly could, and. The thing, I don't know if I mentioned it when I was explaining the really slow way that I do it, uh, but your fridge is kind of important. <laughs> you need to get that temperature of the dough below 10 degrees yep. um, after you've made it. So you're still making the dough at somewhere between 20 and 24 degrees, and then you put it straight in the fridge. If you want to do that really slow fermentation, so I'm talking 24 hours each stage, Step. Yep. You've got to get the temperature of the dough down. Um, you still start the temperature, you still start the dough between 20 and 24, but then you've got to get it down. 
and uh, once it's down below 15, it holds much longer, and down below 10, it holds for a long time. Yeah, okay. and that still fermenting, but just, it's just, just a much slower slowly. process. Yeah, and you get more. It's a bit like a an old bottle of wine versus uh, a young one. The flavours in an old bottle of wine are the same as the flavours in the young one. It's just that they're a little bit less pronounced, a little bit more subtle. Yeah, and and that's kind of what happens with a slow fermentation as well. Okay. Cool. Well, that, yeah. I've, I've timed that perfectly. I'll um, I'll definitely give that a go. Especially the 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 what the couple of things that I think where I was going wrong was, uh, trying to do it over a Saturday with three young kids running around, and you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, geez, I've left it an hour too long, or I've got ten minutes here and it's half an hour too early. I really need to do it now because I know in twenty minutes I'm going to yeah. be too busy to do it. So. The um yeah. the the idea of stretching it over a couple of days, especially because I can you know do it once they've gone to bed, that that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's initial. I mean, I I'm a great believer in the idea that you structure your bread making uh, practice to fit around your life, not the other way, the way around. around. Yeah, I I I don't get out of bed uh, too early in the morning. Uh, and I try not to stay out of bed too late at night. It's it's got to fit with me. Yeah, you know? that's the way I do it. Now the, the 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 thing I really wanted to talk to you about is you you make and sell ovens to is it to, to home bakers or mostly commercial bakers who who mostly buys your ovens? Um, everybody. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got. We've got a lot of uh, well. At this point, we've got a quite a wide variety of different styles of bakers oven. Um, Craig Miller from Aromatic Embers is my sort of design partner on on the ovens, and he has a a variety of sort of I guess you call them uh, down market ovens, but they're they're still they're not cheap. Um, but they're very suitable for home use. So something you could put in the backyard and bake a dozen loaves of bread. Um, at a time quite easily. Uh, and then we go right up to where currently we're uh, about to start manufacturing one that has four and a half metres of deck space. Wow. So that's for a large commercial bakery. And ha- how, um, many, how many loads will that be? Uh, that would be able to handle... Uh, somewhere in the vicinity of about 60 loaves at a time. Holy Jesus. That's a lot of sourdough. Yeah, I think, well, mine's in the middle. Mine's mine's about a three-metre deck space oven, and I can handle about between 36 and 48 loaves at a time. but you're and, doing you're doing more than one cook, aren't you? You're doing a couple. Well, I do. I run it. These ovens are a bit different to other wood-fired ovens. They run continuously. So, I will do. Typically, I'll get the first loaves in the oven at two o'clock in the afternoon, and I'll be continuously baking until midnight or even later. Um, at, at that sort of pace, somewhere between, on average, about thirty-six loaves in the oven at any given time. And typically, from the time they go in the oven to the time they come out, it's a bit under an hour. Um, and I'm pretty happy if I'm averaging between 30 and 40 loaves an hour in a bake. 
using my oven. And as I said, that's a two-meter oven. Um, yeah. when I that first, Yeah, yeah. When I first started chatting to you, one of the things that really interested me was that you're not sort of just replicating your oven for other people. You're, you guys are improving the engineering of of the sourdough mm. oven is is that is that a correct sort of assumption yeah yeah we, the um when i i started to talk to craig miller about six years ago at that time i bumped into his product on ebay and he was just making pizza ovens but i liked the design of them because they were what we would call uh, a white oven which means that the firebox is separate to the baking chamber. Yep. Um, and that's what I've always wanted to do. Um, and is that what lets, lets you um, continually bake because you can continue to stoke right. it? So you're not sort of, it's not like the the sort of wood-fired pizza ovens that I've got a book of plans on where you put, you light it and it heats up and then you cook in it and it slowly cools down. Yeah, that's right. That's That's referred to as a black oven. Okay, yep. so because the, it's, the inside's black, yep. Yeah, um, that's when the firebox is inside the baking chamber. So they're, they're quite a different beast. They, they heat up from the inside to the outside. So that's typically an Alan Scott type of oven, a black oven. Um, and uh, they will have a large amount of thermal mass uh, around the, the whole baking chamber, top, bottom, sides, everything. And you, you fire them up on the inside until a component of that thermal mass is evenly heated, um, which can take many, many hours. Um, and then you, you take the fire out and you do a, a series of, of bakes, maybe three or four, um, three or four settings, uh, of bread. And then you fire it up again if you want to bake more. Yeah. Um, which is great. Uh, in a large, large oven. The way we design them is they heat up from the outside in. So the flue gas goes around the outside of the baking chamber and there's not as much thermal mass. We're still talking quite a lot of thermal mass, but nowhere near as much as that type of oven. And they will heat up from anywhere between two and four hours um, from cold. And then you can run them continuously by simply maintaining fire uh, for as long as you want. Um, and you can also uh, you can also insulate the outsides of them with more bricks so that they stay hot for a long period of time. So if you know if someone's running a bakery, um, they might run the oven on a daily basis. So it uses a lot less fuel if you wrap the whole oven up in more brick. Yeah, because the oven will stay hot for longer, and therefore you don't need as much fuel to take it up to temperature when you want to use it. But to answer your question, we the ovens have continually improved, and from six years ago to now, we built myself and Craig built three prototypes until we've ended up well, actually four prototype ovens. Um, so what Craig would do in the end is he would give me one of his pizza ovens and I would fiddle around with it until such time as I made it into a bread oven. And then he will take away the bread oven and manufacture it. Yep. And uh, now we've got sort of three general styles of oven, I suppose you'd call them. Um, a trattoria style, which is like your sort of home, you know, once a week kind of 
home baking backyard oven. Um, we've got the Market Master series, which is a commercial and semi-commercial range of ovens that come anywhere from a, a metre in a metre worth of deck space up to about, as I said, four and a half. And we've got the Artisan series, which is the, like the one I have, and they're similar to the Market Master, but they're just a bit more refined, and they're um, they're a more, much more expensive oven to manufacture. So, yeah, so we're using they're mainly being used in sort of high-end bakeries um, around Australia at this stage, but we are sending one of the latest ones, which is actually Market Master, to Manila. Um, later this year, so they're starting to go overseas as well. So, if I was um, going to do something for the backyard, I'm, I'm, you, do you think I'm better off with one of these white ovens than a traditional black pizza style oven? Yeah, I do because they're a lot more flexible. Um, you can still use them to bake pizzas in, they'll still achieve 350, 400 degrees. Um, Celsius, or you can run, you can use them for bread, you can put a, a beast in them, yeah. um, uh, you can do your roasts, you can do your veggies, you can even use the, um, the, the remaining heat to dry vegetables. Um, they're just a much more useful oven than a typical wood-fired oven. And the other thing about them is you don't use anywhere near as much fuel. Um, yeah. When I say fuel, I mean wood. Yeah. yeah, and if you have to, if you're like me and you go and cut your own wood, then that's probably a good thing. That's right. And uh, the other big advantage of these ovens that, that my oven, I don't use, um, you know, top quality hardwoods. Oh, we're lucky here. We've got a um, we've got a sawmill about ten k's down the road, and they have offcuts, and I just simply use you know, offcuts of floorboards or tomato steaks or whatever it is that they're milling at any given time. And it cost me $20 to fill the back of my station wagon. Um, and I bring that home and from that $20 worth of offcuts, uh, I can power the oven for five or six bakes. Wow. So, so all in all, I'm spending about $4 per bake on my wood. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, and good each bake is, that's brilliant. There's, there's, um, there's no way. There's no way you'd you could do that much baking for four dollars worth of electricity. No, no, it's much much cheaper. You, even if I even if I count my time, it still costs me on average about twenty dollars a bake or less, um, including the time it takes me to go up to the sawmill and load it up and bring it all home and stack it and all that. Still, it costs me about less than twenty dollars per per baking session, uh, and I tend to concentrate on doing fairly big bakes. So it's very cost-effective. Comparatively speaking, my last bakery, I had a gas oven, and I was spending, on average, about 160 to $180 a week baking five days, so roughly about $30 a bake, just, yeah. just using... Just and, in and the I gas. Yeah. I wasn't doing the, the same volume either. I, I was doing much less volume. So this is pretty efficient. Um, do you still get, like, you know, I love cooking anything with wood because I think you get the flavour, you know, the the, the flavour of some of the wood goes into it. Do you still get that with the with your ovens or is it completely separated out? 
it is now the bread ovens are completely separated out, um, and you, but you still get that sort of wood-fired flavour because we bake on the sole using semolina, and the semolina burns, and so burns. you get smoke. You get you get a bit uh, of smoke, yep. <laughs> but uh, we do have um, the option in the Trattoria series where you we've got a little gate that allows you to put the smoke back through the through the baking chamber if you choose to. Yep. But I must admit um, we've moved away from that uh, in recent years because it's the thing that makes the biggest difference to homemade bread is more to do with the amount of thermal mass that surrounds the baking chamber and to put more brick around the baking chamber makes it harder and harder to reintroduce that blue gas yep because you've got to find Um, a gap somewhere and and if you if you've got a gap then you're letting thermal mass out as as well as um yeah that's right um and you're also the easiest way to if you were the sort of person that just really liked that smoky flavor the easiest way to achieve it believe it or not, would be to put a stick of timber inside the baking chamber <laughs> and just leave it there. Just leave it there. It, well, it would eventually burn. Yeah, it would it, uh, smolder away. I've actually, oh, yeah. we, we bought a, um, uh, I work in the butcher industry, so, you know, we, we do a lot of um, oak and beech wood chip for smoke ovens. And yeah. um, I bought two pallets of these, um beach blocks for a, an american style smokehouse um yep. and they missed the boat and um by the time they got here he'd got them somewhere else and basically told me to take a running jump with my two pallets of um oh, no. <laughs> two pallets of uh of beach beach wood blocks so uh yep. they slowly came home to my place and went through my cold smoker um, where I sp- yeah. smoke my bacon and salmon, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best way to use them, but they got used eventually. So, well, okay, okay. So what the the beach got um, got held up on the way, did it? Oh, just just what like we you know we buy containers of of wood chip and and for whatever reason they didn't get these two pallets were a late addition and they didn't get loaded onto that container. They held them over till the next container, but we only get a container oh. every four or five months and he was expecting them to turn up at a certain date and they didn't turn up. So, Oh, no. And we didn't know until we basically got the container in our yard, unloaded the container and went, hang on, there's supposed to be two pallets of blocks on here. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we, we'd already paid for them and, yeah. Yeah, oh, no. anyway. These things happen. It was good. I, yeah. I I made a lot of very nice tasting bacon. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Craig likes to make smokers. He he builds a few of those as well. Yeah. Um. He's got smokers and hot smokers and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um. They're a lot easier to build than than these ovens that I've just been talking about. They're much simpler the box. Yeah. Like um, I, like my cold smoker is an old washing machine. Uh, body with a bit of air conditioning ducting down to a, you know, four-gallon drum uh, mm. with a lid yeah. on it, basically. Yeah. Um, and it works fantastic. You know, I've done I've done heaps of bacon and heaps of um, cold smoked salmon, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Out of them, so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Hey. 
there's a, a baker's oven is just, you know, you've got to be able to achieve temperatures in excess of 250 or more, and that's where the complication sets in, I suppose. So you, you're obviously trying to hit a temperature and then hold it there. Um, mm. Is that just a is that just a feel thing, or have you got temperature gauges on the oven and you sort of know when to stop burning wood? And um, yeah, it's a bit of both. The way that my oven works, it's got decks, one one above the other. Yep. Um, and side by side as well, and it's a bit of a trick to get the heat even between the bottom and the top deck. Um, tends to be that the bottom deck gets hotter. And in order to keep the heat travelling up to the top, you've got to keep a certain amount of flame in the firebox all the time. Um, and I suppose I I aim for about somewhere between 250 and 300 on the bottom deck. Uh, and then I'm usually pretty happy with anything around about 200 on the top. And uh, the way you bake is you set your dough on the bottom deck, so that gives it the kick. Because yep. the heat's coming from the floor going up, and then once it's maximally kicked, you flip it up the top, and that's it sits in the top deck or decks to set and uh, crust. Okay. Um, so uh, it, and it doesn't doesn't matter that it get it's being moved around. It that that nah. has no effect on it once it's basically sort of got that bottom crust. Yeah. The interesting thing about when you're baking with thermal mass as opposed to convective heat. Um, say you've got your home oven, all right? There's not much thermal mass there. So it does the work using convective heat, which is basically gas. Yeah. Um, as in hot, you know, hot air. Uh, and when you're cooking bread with hot air, it cooks from the outside in. Um, in other words, it has no momentum. The heat just hits the outside of the crust and gradually, gradually, gradually penetrates the crust. So it's completely different when you're using um, a wood-fired oven or an oven with a lot of thermal mass. And what happens with these ovens is that because the heat doesn't come by so much by convective heat, but actually comes through the bricks, um, the heat has got like momentum. So the bread actually cooks at the same time well, right the way true. through the like bread. Yeah, right. So the inside is cooked at the same time as the outside, and the last thing that happens in the oven is the crust colour. <laughs> so so by the time you've got crust colour, the inside's well and truly cooked. Cooked. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that why it's also that, that thermal mass style is really good for pizzas because it's basically all cooking at exactly the same time? Exactly. That's exactly right. There's... It, if you've done any um, engineering, they, they classify heat according to the way that it travels. So you've got you've got convective heat, which is, as I said before, travels by gas. You've got radiant heat, which is like the sun or a flame or a brick that's really, really hot. becomes yeah. a radiant so the heat source. And the third type of heat is called conductive heat. Now, as you would know, when you cook a pizza on the sole of the oven, you're getting a lot of conductive heat. So the heat is travelling directly from the brick into, into the pizza. The, into the dough. Yeah. So this heat has got the most momentum because it, it's literally, it's got a brick's worth of heat 
might be a two kilogram brick, so you've literally got two kilograms worth of heat that might be going into a kilogram worth of dough. Yeah. So it goes right through the dough. Um, similarly, if you've got a baking chamber that's got the whole outside of the baking chamber is wrapped up with, you know, say it's brick, um, but a heavy substance that holds heat, then you're getting a massive amount of that radiant heat. And radiant heat, again, is much more um, solid heat than convective heat. So to give you a practical example, I can open, now my oven weighs about three tonnes. I can open the door of my oven, stand there and fiddle around with it, move dough around inside using the peel, whatever. I can have the door open for five minutes and I've got a little laser pointer and I can point that laser at the bricks before I start fiddling around with the oven and then after I've finished fiddling around, so the door's been open you know, for five minutes. And the temperature will have changed by maybe five degrees yeah, in that time. Because it's not in the gas, it's in the bricks. That's right. And uh, and then if, I lo- if I've lost a bit of heat from the convective from the baking chamber because I've had the door open, because there's so much brick around the outside of the baking chambers, it'll recover in less than a few minutes. Yeah. So it, it'll back up to full temperature very, very quickly, which is different to your home. You know, when you open the door of your home yeah. oven, full heat runs out, and then you've got to wait 10 minutes to get it back again. Yeah, you know, well... Yeah. <laughs> When we do, like I do pizzas here and, and I've got the crappiest, it's, it's one of those weird things. I've got this crappy old electric oven, but yep. I don't have much um, spare cash having three small children and I don't want to go and buy another crappy new oven. I want to buy a good oven. Um, yeah. So I sort of persist with the with the crappy one that the door doesn't close. But I, like my pizza always gets cooked last and it always takes the longest because, you know, you've opened and shut the the, the door of the oven that's right three or four times yep. by then and even though i've got a pizza stone you know that the the air yep. in the oven has just lost all its temperature whereas yeah that's right the, the kids that's pizzas right. which, a lot of the time, which go in first sorry a lot of time yeah you, sorry you go <laughs> we've got small motors <laughs> yeah that's right you know there's a big chamber with very little element or gas flame um, so it's like trying to drag along a V8 body with a four-cylinder motor. Yep. You know? Yeah. You, have you tried doing pizzas in your barbecue? Have you got a backyard barbecue? I do, yeah, gas one, yep. So yeah, my, perfect. Am, Has it am, got a lid? Yeah, it's got a lid, so am I better off doing them in there? Absolutely. With, with a pizza stain Absolutely. on top of the grill or? Yep. Get your pizza stone, put it in the middle, or you can go to Bunnings and get yourself a couple of uh, pavers. Yeah. Um, not too thick, you know, half inch, a centimetre thick if you can get them. And doesn't matter what, um, what mater- even, uh, material they're made out of? Doesn't matter. Um, you can't use you can't use a fired material, so a ceramicised tile will eventually crack. Yeah. What a lot of people do is they get a, the, the uh, well, pizza stones are fine, of course, but people like square because square is, um, you can put more than one thing on them, yeah. you know? Um, 
So you can use those terracotta bases upside down that you get underneath your terracotta pot plants. Oh, yeah. Yep. You just put them upside down. Um, put that in the middle of the the, uh, the barbecue uh, face, right in the middle. And then down each side, you get about six tin cans and you fill your tin cans full of water. So you cut the lids off. Yeah. And about half filled with water um, because you need quite a lot of moisture to get the, the, the steam. Uh, and then you wind your, your barbecue up to about 250 or so, all four burners. You get you put your, your pizza stone or your terracotta pot base or your pavers or whatever it happens to be that you've got and so you put them in there at the same time. So they're nice and hot. You wait till the temperature has been sitting at about 250 for a good 15, 20 minutes so that stone is hot. Then you turn off the burners that are underneath the stone. Yep. And you leave the outside burners going. You set your pizza on top of it or your loaf of bread or whatever it is that you're cooking. Um, remember that you've got all these tin cans down the side of it, so they're generating lots of steam. Um, and uh, and then just watch the temperature on the gauge. Um, you'll find that it, it, it struggles a bit sometimes, depending on how big your barbecue is. Uh, but it'll get back up to 250 pretty quickly, and then your pizza will be done in, you know, three or four minutes. And and that's probably better to, to also than my home oven for having a go of the sourdough as well? Much better. Um, okay. The other thing, too, that's worth remembering, I mentioned before about, you know, the size of the motor of your oven. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your domestic oven has got a tiny little motor and a big a big body. Um your, your barbecue has got a massive motor. It's got three or four big burners. Mm, but a smaller body. Head. Yeah. Much more powerful. Yeah, okay. Never thought of it that way, yeah. but that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it works. Um, it actually got me very turned on to making ovens. Once I started playing around with barbecues a few years back, um, that, that was one of the big factors that said, I, I can do this, I can make ovens now. And I've made a few. I've made I made a really nice one out of a forty-four gallon drum and about three hundred bricks. Um, and I built that in the backyard and just grouted it together. I didn't actually mortar it. Um, and it works really well. It heats up in about forty minutes, and you can bake a dozen loaves of bread in that as well. So you know, lots of ways you can do it. So is that using the same theory with the fire separate to? So did you build yep. like fire underneath and then like a layer of bricks? Yeah, that's right. And, um, and then just run what a flue up sort of the outside to, to, to let the heat, the, to let the smoke out. That's right. Um, you, you basically imagine um, two parallel brick walls with a 44-gallon drum suspended um, about halfway up one of them, um, held up by, uh, I've used um, barbecue plates. Yep. So, uh, well, actually, barbecue grids, secondhand barbecue grids. So that's, so that's holding the um, that's holding the 44 gallon drum up. And I've got a fire underneath that between the two brick walls. And I've just got a little uh, chimney up the top. Okay. Very, so, very simple. So you're you're putting the the 44 gallon drum on its um like uh like length uh, like lying down on its length, not up and down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, 
on the website, then sourdoughbaker.com.au, yeah, have I'll... a little look around in the oven section, and there's one that's a $250 pizza oven or bread oven, and it explains to you how to how to build it. And uh, it's, there's a little bit of detail in there, um, but it's a beautiful little oven, and it takes about um, 40, 45 minutes to heat from cold. And you can you can run it continuously, like all the ovens that we make. You can just run them all the time if you choose to. Yeah, yeah, bit of fun. It's a bit like your smoker, you know, with the washing machine. It's just a different angle. Yeah, yeah, and there's the, um, like the, there's obviously when you buy something off an off an expert like you guys, it's it's going to work forever, but. There is something about tinkering around with something and making it, and then going, "Oh, okay, now I understand what I did wrong." Yeah. And then making yeah. another one, you, you know, the, uh, like I think part of the part of the um, attraction of living where I live and sort of um, playing around, you know, having the space to play around with things is 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 the attraction of that because you know, a little yeah. bit harder to do in a little suburban backyard, but for for me, I've got plenty of space and I can do do things like that. So. I hadn't seen yeah, this, uh, this ovens page on your um, on your site. I'll have to sit around and have a bit of a look now. So, yeah, have a poke around and by all means, um, but that's exactly we're the same here. We're we're on six hectares. We don't have a suburban block, so we've got as much space as we want. And when I built the, that one, I was just talking about. Um, I, I said to my my partner, where you know where am I going to put it? And uh, she said, Oh, over there near the trampoline. So I. I Put it on near the trampoline, and it was a bit out of the way because she she didn't think that it was going to work, and um, it just luckily it did work, and uh, so my next port of call will be to probably dismantle it and rebuild it in a more sort of family friendly place because yeah. we've got something here, you know, I can put it anywhere, and uh, you know I'll put it down there where where the family hangs out for our barbecues and so forth. Um, next time and refine it a bit and you know but that 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 one I built that in oh well I, it took me longer to assemble all the bits and pieces than it did to actually make it I, I think I made it in a day and was using it the next day so and do no. you use particular type of bricks for that no. or just just no. recycled house bricks yep cheap and cheerful yeah uh, again. You know, I, I do get all that, that particular batch from the local. We've got a, a very good um, reuse centre here at our local tip, which is basically people take, you know, whatever can't be dumped at the tip um, or anything that has any sort of value and they donate to the reuse centre and you can buy it, you know, anything from secondhand building materials to push bikes to, yeah. you know, kitchen sinks, quite literally. Um, and you can go there and for a very reasonable... Uh, price you can you can pick up anything secondhand and so that's what I do um, and then that particular project I was talking about that uh, that was entirely made or virtually entirely made from secondhand materials from that tip shop um, so the whole thing cost me a couple hundred bucks which yeah, you know <laughs> which is awesome yeah because well yeah. you know um a wood-fired oven outside has been uh, on the list of things to do, and and I guess oh, what's been stopping me a little bit is like I've always thought there was a fair bit of um, 
like, like the black ovens, I always thought, you know, there was a fair bit of, um, not a fair bit, but a, you have to do it properly or you end up cracking it. And, and um, well, you do. And, and that's exactly right. When you, I've known many, many blokes, and they're almost always blokes, who build these ovens in their backyard and they go to enormous lengths to get it exactly right. And they create, you know, they do a keystone setup and, you know, um, very particular bricks and, you know, it's 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 a it's a real project, and while you know that's great, um, I'm like you. I, I don't have the patience. <laughs> no, well, I just want it to work. Like essentially, exactly. You know, we yeah. we we have a sourdough pizza here at least once a week because um, mm. the kids love them, and you know, my my sourdough base is pretty good now. Um, but I just yeah. love to be able to do them and. You know, I'd love to be able to do a shoulder of a lamb in a in a wood fired oven. Um, yeah, you know, th- yeah. things like that that I just know are going to taste heaps better. Or the flip side is, if you've got twelve people coming around and you don't want to, you don't want to cook a whole heap of stuff inside the house in a Queensland summer yeah. because that's not yeah. ideal. So, well, again, um, the second or third time we've used this this oven, I've got I've just been talking about. We've got some friends that got eight kids. And they came around uh, one day and we had a roast. And I could do a roast for 12 people with all the veggies, everything you needed in a couple of hours in that oven um, all at once. Yeah. You know, it was the easiest roast we've ever made. Um, and, and, you know, not a, not a whole lot of mucking around. And you try to do that in your domestic oven unless you've got a monster. Um, you know, that's going to take you a long time. And, and meanwhile, I was just stood there outside the oven keeping the fire up to it and drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best way to cook. All right, Warwick. Um, yeah. Now, if you go to sourdoughbaker.com, you can find pretty much everything about your stuff there. The ovens are on there for sale. Are you doing courses yep. as well? Yep, I do. Uh, I do a monthly course here which is for, you know, Joe Public. Yep. Um, anybody that wants to refine their sourdough skills can come here and learn. It's a full-day workshop. Um, I do it here with – I've got a I've got a whole outdoor, semi-outdoor kind of bakery um, down the bottom of the, the front garden. Um, so we, we have up to 12 people come once a month and uh, spend the day learning and baking together, uh, which is a lot of fun. Yep. And they yeah, say so they're once a month. And I also do uh, a professional course, which is a four-day intensive um, based around a real production session. And that happens once every two months. And I only take up to three people for that one. Cool. And uh, that, that workshop specifically for people who either uh, are already in the trade and they want to develop some skills around artisan sourdough production um, or... It's for people who live in an area, maybe like yourself, who can see a, an opportunity to set up a bread store at their local market. Um, and, uh, you know, they want to set up a business for themselves that's very low capital and very, um, very workable. Um, so I call them sort of tree changers. And I do, the, a lot of those people come to these workshops as well. Yeah. And I've, I've been doing those for the last, two years and I think um, out of the, the maybe 
30 or 40 people that we've uh, taught over that time. Might be a few more now. I, I haven't really kept numbers on it. Um, we've certainly got a good half a dozen bakeries up um, in exactly that fashion. And we've got now, we've got actually one in Brisbane, just out of Brisbane, Davies Bakery, uh, are now producing a really nice range of high high quality sourdough breads as a result of doing that workshop. Well, I think the um, thing is, once you taste decent sourdough, you know, w- once you've had good sourdough, you don't, you can really taste, you know, if you go and buy the sourdough in inverted commas from Woolworths or Coles um, or, or a crappy bakery, you, it's not something that you can fool people on. Good, good sourdough is just such a different beast. It is. That's right. It's, it's highly addictive. Um, every now and then we run out here because I haven't baked one week or whatever, and so we're forced to go and buy some regular bread from somewhere. And it just, you know, just hurts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for having a chat to me, mate. Oh, pleasure, John. I'm and glad we could finally get together and do it. I and follow and follow Warwick on um, Instagram, which is where I found you. Um, b- because there is, uh, it's, is it sourdough baker? Yep. Just any of key in the word sourdough and baker into virtually any device, and you'll find something Fine. about me. Um, because yeah, if you, if, if you want to drool all over your phone, that's the Instagram uh, account to follow. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Rory. Cheers, mate. Thanks for talking. See ya. See ya.